and welcome to The Well. As always, I am your host, Dylan Bowman. And this week, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming my friend, Markel Taylor, to the podcast in an episode that is really special for me. Markel and I met when he was serving a 15 years to life sentence in San Quentin State Prison in Northern California. I was living there at the time and volunteering for the running club in the prison. And at that point, Markel was the fastest member of the group by far. And based on our pacing and the, the fact that nobody else could keep up with him, we naturally became training partners and uh, eventually friends. And Markel ultimately served 18 years and was released in early 2019 after breaking every record in the San Quentin record book. And since being released, Markel has continued using running as his therapy and as his tool for self-improvement in his life as a free man. Now, as a disclaimer, I've been hesitant to ask Markel to come on the show because I've honestly felt protective of him as a friend. And part of my commitment as a volunteer for the Thousand Mile Club is that we just don't ever ask the club members how they ended up in prison. Sometimes guys offered up what they'd been convicted of, but for the vast majority of guys, we honestly have no idea. Um, our focus as volunteers is really on helping the guys where they were in the moment, not, not judging them based on what they'd done in their past. And as such, I would encourage you all to reserve your own judgment based on Markel's mistakes and instead maybe focus on how far he's come. In our conversation, we talk about Markel's journey of incarceration, how he dealt with the reality of, of a life sentence, how running helped him with um, that reality of prison life, and how he now sees his 18-year incarceration as a positive part of his life with some perspective now as a free man. We also talk about his running of the Boston Marathon just a few weeks after his release, which he received a lot of media attention for, including a New York Times profile. And we touch on some of his other running goals that he has set for himself in the future. It's a powerful story of redemption and rehabilitation through running. I hope this conversation gives you hope and gives you good feelings. Please welcome Markel Taylor. Welcome everybody. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend, Markel Taylor to the podcast. Markel, how are you, my friend? It's good to see you. Uh, nice to see you too, Dylan. It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. Yeah, yeah. we uh, we talk on the phone, you know, it seems like once a week or so at least, but uh, I haven't uh, been able to lay my eyes on you in, in a little while and here via the miracle of Zoom. Um, I, I see a, a very well-dressed man wearing uh, his really cool new apparel that we'll get to talk about a little later in the podcast. The Markel, the gazelle runs free. Um, Markel, I'm so happy we're doing this, man. I wanted to talk to you on the podcast for a long time. You and I share 
uh, a really awesome friendship, uh, a friendship that has, I think, provided a lot of value um, for both of us and and me specifically. Um, you know, we we met in in strange circumstances, and uh, our our friendship and uh, relationship has has blossomed over the course of the last few years. And um, I wanted to start our conversation by allowing you to provide the listeners to this podcast, just the, the story of, of how we met each other, how we became close and, and how we pushed each other as men as, and as athletes. Yeah, great. Uh, just don't scold me for not remembering exactly which dates. <laughs> <laughs> I just know it's been a while. Um, yeah. Inside the prison, um, I'm serving a life sentence and so to help me in doing that, I um, I joined this running club. And at first I was being a little selfish in my in my mind, thinking that, okay, I don't get much in here anyway. And the packages don't sell good quality stuff. And I see all these guys with these really nice running shoes and these really nice baseball caps. <laughs> so I want to attain one of them. So maybe if I can join this club since I'm already running, uh, there will be some incentives to go with it, something that I won't normally get otherwise. So I joined the club and uh, shortly after that, um, I don't know if it was during my first marathon or the second one is where uh, I met you coming in. It could have been the first one. Was it the first one? I, I think it was the exactly. first one. I think it was the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah. You started coming in. Uh, on the what Tuesday night tracks, Monday night. And, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, Monday night tracks and yeah. uh, Tuesday is out here in Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Monday night um, <laughs> track workouts and uh, that's when uh, I think I took it to an extra level because before yeah I I I joined the club and I lost my first race. It was some kind of documentary that I didn't know about. I was just running just to run it. And I thought it was three miles. So I pushed hard and then I ran and tired myself out and I stopped and they kept going a little, a little bit more <laughs> after that. And, and uh, I lost my first race. So I said, well, let me see, let me join these guys and, and how they get fast. So they started training with this guy inside named Red, who was a formal uh, Olympic sprinter. Yeah. And so I wanted to join them in those speed workouts so I can get better. Yep. And once I started training with them guys and realizing that uh, my old school, high school speed came back as a middle distance runner and I was able to pass them after a few uh, uh, yards. And I was like, okay, I think yeah. I'll be able to hang with these guys. So, <laughs> but uh, not too long after that, when the outside guest who was a big, was I think the biggest contributors of helping us to attain uh, like uh, peace of mind, uh, self-esteem, um, just being able to like feel better about ourselves as human beings and to be able to have people to come from the outside inside to, uh, you know, just tell us that they love us and, they, and there's no judgment and they just want us to be better people. And that that is a big part of the recovery process inside mm -hmm. the prison. So yeah. that's when I met you, Dylan. Yes, you were the coaches, right? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I was kind of like, believe it or not, like 
what they call that when you meet it like a a really good athlete. Uh, I was kind of like shocked, shell shocked, uh, <laughs> yeah, met starstruck, yeah, starstruck. Yeah, right. yeah, that's it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I said, "Oh, Dylan, I heard about this guy's running and doing real well, ultra runner at that." Because I never, I, I didn't think there was anything over. And I'm hearing that people's running like hundred milers. Yeah, and uh, and being good at it, and then you know you push me, and, and we push each other, and uh, yeah. I was just happy to be able to still be able to compete in that, in that kind of arena where yeah. somebody just like, I could sit a real class. So I thank you for helping me out with that. You know? Oh, well, well, brother, the, the feeling is mutual and just to provide my perspective on the whole thing. Yeah. So we met when you were incarcerated in, in San Quentin state prison and in, in Marin County, California. And I had the great fortune of being connected with uh, the group of people who went in to volunteer for the San Quentin thousand mile club, which is the running club within the prison. And uh, it wasn't long after I got involved. I think we sort of came into the club at around the same time together. So we had this Mm. sort of, um, we had this overlapping kind of, um, you know, time frame um, where we, we both sort of got involved with the club and immediately upon uh, becoming a member, you became, you know, the fastest member maybe of all time. And, and certainly, you know, the, the best fastest member of the club at the time. And, and Monday nights were our, our workout nights. So uh, we would come in uh, twice a month, every other Monday for workouts, uh, that were put together by the head coach of the club, Frank Rona, always geared towards the next race. And we would usually do a race about once a month. So usually us volunteers would come in two or three times a month, Frank, a little bit more than that. And, uh, yeah, every other Monday night, you and I would have the, uh, the good fortune to be able to push each other because there was, there was nobody else inside who could, who could really, hang with you. And so, you know, it became up to me to sort of like be the guy to, to hang with you and to push you. And, um, and oftentimes it was not an easy task for, for me, uh, which speaks, you know, highly of, of your talent and especially in the circumstances and in the environment where, where you were training, which was inside the prison, which we'll get into here a little bit more, but I wanted to first talk because, you know, I don't know a ton about your upbringing, you know, if all the times we've been running together and the few years that I've known you, um, I, I wondered sort of like, if you want to provide a little bit of context about what your upbringing was like and, and how running factored into it. And did you ever feel like, or did you ever expect that you may one day end up, um, incarcerated in prison for such a long time? It's weird. As a child growing up, I had these nightmares of the boogeyman and people chasing me and me running. Mm-hmm. And that was times later on as I got in my middle school and teenage years was a time where I actually felt like there was a time where I might be actually incarcerated. I had nightmares about that and was afraid um, when I was younger. But um, besides you know, talking about the documentary coming out and, you know, be doing a little mini series on my life story. I could just say that my childhood was, I lived in a very large family. 
Um, I started out in the projects in Chicago, a very dangerous Robert Taylor projects where a lot of crime and a lot of stuff going on, kidnapping, rape, uh, domestic violence, the whole nine. It's like very violent. You know, mm-hmm. most ghettos or project housing where it's low income and poverty, impoverished people, you know, um, like good times, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. Um, so my upbringing wasn't very, it wasn't the average, like you would watch on a Cosby show or something like that. It was, yeah. it was, it was very tough and completely opposite of that. Um, so I grew up in constant fear, actually, in mm-hmm. fear. That's why I had nightmares. That's why I couldn't sleep well. That's why I used to wet the bed because I would be scared, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff like that. I, I wouldn't be able to share and I didn't really understand growing up. That's why I ended up committing my crime. Mm-hmm. But now after being able to do a lot of inner work on myself, I'm, I'm able to understand and go back into my childhood and see things that happen and the intergenerational traumas and environmental influences and all of these things that uh, was just, uh, um, I will say, a contributing factor that kind of was the icing on the cake of me committing uh, crimes in my future. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is one of the major takeaways that I had during my time of volunteering for the club is just recognizing how easy my life has been and developing friendships with people like you and other members of the club who are currently incarcerated or have been recently released and recognizing the fact that I had been giving basically every advantage in life. And, you know, by virtue of that, you know, there, there was, there was nothing different between myself and you guys within the prison, um, except for the fact that I was given more opportunities and I, by, you know, by virtue of being a, a straight white man was basically, you know, born on third base and had certain, you know, opportunities that, don't come along, uh, for the majority of people in the world. And, you know, just seeing how the upbringing of each individual has an influence on their life trajectory, often positive, but also often in a negative way. Um, you know, I think it's just important for, for people to recognize, you know, and to learn a little bit more about your story and, you know, it, it sort of, it makes sense, right. That, um, if there's kind of violence in your past or in your environment or, uh, sort of around you at all times, uh, when you're growing up as a kid, uh, it's puts you in a, in a difficult position whereby, um, you know, you, you, you're just sort of, I guess, preconditioned to those types of situations. And that's not to obviously make excuses for any, um, you know, behaviors or things like that. But I think it is really important to just acknowledge that the, the, the context of somebody's life makes a difference in in where they end up. And we are all in control of our own destiny to a certain degree, but we have to respect and acknowledge, you know, that our history shapes us. And, in, for the purposes of framing our conversation, I think it's relevant to just kind of inform the listeners 
um, you know, that you were convicted of a, a violent crime and the early 2000s, you were sentenced to 15 years to life. You ultimately served 18 years in, in, in prison. Um, and so, you know, to get into sort of this part of our conversation where we talk about the realities of, of being an incarcerated person, um, when you look back at your mid twenties, it seems like you were admittedly kind of in a, a lost moment in your life. Looking back, what, what skills or, or negative or what lack of skills or, you know, negative personal experiences did you feel like led to the mistakes that ended up leading to you being incarcerated? Uh, once again, uh, I thank you for this uh, opportunity and moment to, uh, yeah. again, this is therapeutic for me to um, speak out. Um, yes, um, like you said, I like how you pointed that out. Um, regardless of our circumstances and our life surroundings that help shape and mold us, it's still no excuse. We still have a choice. Mm -hmm. But yet at the same time, you do recognize that sometimes these choices are um, kind of influenced by our past or behavior, uh, the things that we have experienced in our lifetime. Um, I know we'll give up like this, where, you know, if you got a child and, and you plan with that child and you ask that child to like, go and lay back and fall back and I'll catch you. Mm -hmm. And if you ask them to do that, and every time you do that with their eyes closed, they fall and hurt themselves, they're going to be thinking hesitantly mm -hmm. about trusting you to even be able to do those things. So that's kind of like how I live my life mm -hmm. as a child growing up. Um, so with that being said, I was just going to say that um, at that time to answer your question, uh, a lot of stuff, I was lost on a lot of stuff on mm -hmm. how to to understand what neglect is, how to communicate, how to really truly love, uh, uh, the agape love, or just loving unconditionally. Um, all of these things were like things that I had trouble trying to understand and put all together and understand what that's, what that looks like mm -hmm. because in my family it was hard. Um, so when I took that out in my adult life, it was like, before you hurt me, I'm either going to hurt you or I'm going to run away from you. So you can't hurt me. So I never gave things a chance. And if I did have an opportunity, I just didn't know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. So I would run away from it. So it was one of those things uh, to where I just, I went to something that would help or at least at that time, I felt like it was a sense of security. You know, mm -hmm. I indulged in the drinking a lot of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then that also helped influence my behavior to where it just catapulted into more self-pity and, and shame and, and more lack of low self-esteem. Like, man, uh, I just have a general education in school. I ran, but I had an opportunity to take a scholarship, but I didn't because I was afraid that I might not be able to be successful in that. So I just, mm. you know, it's a lot of bad choices and bad decisions that were just a part of that where I didn't have in my family, like you can do it. You are good enough. You know, it's yeah. like, 
I was thinking like the only way I would get that is I would get that through school teachers or people, other people's family members. And, but I wasn't around them 24 seven. So I would get it a little bit here and there. And that's when it seemed like I had peaks and skirts, you know, of like being successful or being okay. But then when that's, when I'm not around that and I'm around regular family and all this problems and these traumas and these issues and what I'm trying to deal with on my own. And this, it just led to led me to have no, it was that hurt people, hurt people thing. So I just yeah. hid my feelings, numbed everything and just tried to, okay, you know what? I'm gonna try to do this on my own, but yeah. it's like a blind man running in the dark yeah. and with blindfolds on in a room with all these obstacles in a way where you can hurt and cut yourself. So I was just running through that in my life, just running through, trying to do everything on my own without no help. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when I ended up committing a crime that was a serious violent crime that ended up me in prison for, uh, it was actually 28 to life. Because mm-hmm. it was 15 plus three. Uh, plus 13? Some, yeah, plus 13 enhancements that was all ran together. And it wow. only ended up with 15 of life. Wow. So what's it like to arrive in prison for the first day when you're facing a 15 to life sentence? What was your mindset like at the time? Well, actually, I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. And you don't end up in prison first you go to a county jail, which is, uh, I think it's, believe it or not, kind of, sort of, in a way, it preps you for prison because it's a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> county jails is, you don't, you don't get TVs in county jail. You get a room and you get a stranger and it could be different types of people or it can be one person. And it's completely different. And the sheriffs and the deputies teach you, treat you a way different than a correctional officer would treat you in a prison setting. So it was very vicious. It was very hard. And, you know, ages in there, I actually went to the hole. I've never been in a hole in prison, but I've been to a hole in the county jail because I got beat up by the police up in there. So it's like, mm. and I'm a first termer, not knowing nothing and got into a wreck just that mm-hmm. easy and ended up in the hole for 21 days and busted mouth and everything. So mm-hmm. like I said, that prepares you for prison. Mm-hmm. So, but what, what's it like when you, when you arrived at San Quentin for the first time, like facing that kind of a sentence, what's, what's your mindset like? Is it completely overwhelming to think about all the days and years that are stretched out in front of you? Did you feel completely hopeless? What was your, what was your disposition like? Believe it or not, I didn't feel hopeless. The mm-hmm. only thing about San Quentin that I didn't like when I first came in is because they only had one main line building at first. Yep. And the building that I moved into was a reception center, which uh, housed people just coming out the county jails into a reception and, and they'll get processed in there after a, a few months up to a year and they would go to the, and, and start doing their sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but San Quentin, I have been like 
in the middle, towards the end of my incarceration sentence, if they was to do this, it says 15 of life. Mm-hmm. And if they would have stuck by that, like a couple of years before that 15 or a year before that 15, you get, you are eligible for parole. So you go to the board mm-hmm. and they can decide to let you go or they don't have to let you go. So by that time, like I said, I spent seven years in San Quentin. And by that time I was towards the end and I had already experienced different penitentiaries that was very, very violent. And so when I got to San Quentin, even though that's still a violent prison, because all prisons are violent, even if they're considered a easier prison or a more programming prison or whatever, um, uh, when I got there, I was like, maybe I have a better opportunity here because of what I heard San Quentin's like to get out. So just let me cut in for a sec, because I think this is an important thing to touch on. For some reason, I thought you had spent your your entire sentence at San Quentin, but you had spent years at at a previous penitentiary before you arrived at San Quentin. So one of the things, though, that I want to dial in on is when, like, when you first arrived at that first penitentiary, when you were, had just newly been sentenced to this 15-year-to-life sentence, was that completely overwhelming? Or, or how were you feeling about your situation in life? And what were your emotions like immediately upon arriving to the first penitentiary after your sentencing? Like I said, I didn't know nothing about prison. That was my mm-hmm. first time ever being locked up. So I was scared mm-hmm. to death. And I, my first incarceration, first prison that I entered was Tracy. And that was known as a gladiator school mm-hmm. where they have a lot of fights and stabbies and killings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, I was, I was freaked out. I was scared. I didn't mm-hmm. know what to expect, what to do. That's why before I even got to prison, I worked out every day religiously um, and except for the weekends. I always took the weekends off to heal my body up, but I worked out in buff push-ups, back arms <laughs> off the bars, dips. <laughs> I was a lot bigger than I was when you see me in San Quentin. <laughs> Dude, you're still completely jacked. You were ripped. But yeah, so was that in, a, in an effort to make it so you were less vulnerable to exactly, potential Exactly, because attack? you can get taken advantage of whether you're getting beat up or being punked or being somebody's female or getting raped. Mm-hmm. Anything can happen to you. So I just wow. want to keep myself to where at least I can be a little bit intimidating looking mm-hmm. and, or at least they'll think twice, or at least they'll feel like if I, if they feel like I'll give them a challenge, then it's less likely that they'll try to want to do something yeah. to me. So, so you were really scared, as you said, as you were exactly. entering prison, but did, did you feel like this heavy burden of time ahead of you? Like what, what I'm trying to understand is like, it's hard to think 15 years down the line in any context of life. And so if, when you go into a prison and they close the door behind you and say, you have to stay here for the next 15 years, what does that feel like? I mean, did you have hope at that point or did that come later? I'm going to be honest with you. 100%. I was scared to death. And a lot of it had to do with my life sentence. Me being in prison, this was my life. I never thought I would just do 15 years and get out because I heard that's what they don't normally do. Uh They're supposed to, but they don't normally do that. Mm -hmm. You rarely get out when they say you're supposed to get out on your first time. Mm -hmm. There's people that's been there for five on a five to life and been there 40 years. 
Mm. So to answer your question, I was scared to death. I didn't even see an ending in sight. Mm-hmm. I thought that was my life forever and I was going to die in prison. And that was even more scarier than the people that I had to protect myself from in that environment. Mm. So as time wore on and as the years start to pass, how did you get better at dealing with the reality that you had all these years in front of you? And how did you deal with the reality that you thought that you were going to die in prison? How do you approach time under those circumstances? Um, Correct me if I'm wrong in saying it. But what is a chameleon there? A chameleon? A chameleon? Or something that, yeah. that blends in or <laughs> yeah. adaptation, uh, metamorphosis. Yeah. I kind of like just, uh, I, I guess it's my childhood growing up in my environment, the people that I stayed around, the neighborhoods that I lived in, I really felt like, you know what, even though I was a scared young kid, even as a youngster growing up, even in San Francisco where I was raised, uh, in those areas, um, very tough, rough fight to survive neighborhoods. So mm. that was like, to me, a big project housing that you could just, uh, you just can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so the adjustment took some time for the fear to subside a little, but mm. I was still scared. Mm-hmm. but I just didn't show it. Cause you can't show a sign of weakness in there. That's when they'll take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Was there a point at which it started to become a little bit easier to like that you had adjusted a little bit better to this new environment? And at what point did it, you start to think that maybe this isn't forever for me. Maybe someday I actually will get out. Well, that's two different things there. Mm-hmm. Because at first, I thought I would never, ever have an opportunity to get out. And then once I was able to meet people, people that have some commonality with me with as far as neighborhoods and areas, you can kind of join them or you can be independent. And I kind of did a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of manipulate my way and strategize a way to, my, to get my survival skills have to be on. Just like people in the, uh, the game show Survivor, they had to, I mean, even though that's a game and those are things, but it's still like everyday life survival, go hunt to get fish. So I kind of was navigating my way through a very evil, wicked prison system um, in a way to keep myself safe and sane. Mm-hmm. And I did that through the course of meeting the right type of people uh and getting involved in the right type of programs, but it took time because not every prison had and provided those necessary things to keep you um, either insane or together without you having to do do some kind of MacGyver skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this goes back to something that you you said before about when you did arrive to San Quentin and um, you didn't feel hopeless at that point. And one of the things that I always try to stress to people who find out that I was involved in the thousand mile club is that even though San Quentin kind of has this reputation on the outside of being this super scary, violent prison that it, it actually in the grand scheme of the California prison system is 
actually pretty progressive because there's a lot of different programs. There's a lot of different volunteers, which create a lot of different opportunities for prisoners to get involved with different programs in order to better themselves in different ways, or to at least pursue interests that they have while they're, while they're inside. And, And one of those things, of course, is the thousand mile club, which is where our friendship blossomed. Can you just describe what the club is for the listeners and how you became involved? The Thousand Mile Club is a club of community of guys in prison who get together with these wonderful, amazing people from the outside that, uh, like you said, uh, the head coach and and other assistant coaches, Frank Rona was the head coach and he had assistant coaches and Dylan was one of them. Um, That is a, it's called... I mean, because like you said, it has these uh, programs at San Quentin that help with the rehabilitation process that help guys to work on themselves from the inside out. That's another thing I like about San Quentin because they got over two or 300 programs, but um, inside somehow a lot of those programs are getting cut when they shouldn't be cut. They should stay there because everybody get their rehabilitation in different forms. That's just like everybody like different types of soap whether it's bathing soap, dishwashing soap, whether it's uh, whatever soap you have. And then people like different tastes of food or styles of food. So, and that's, and I'm just saying that in a way that like with the programs, different programs fit different people. So they get it because everybody's on different types of level and circumstances. And these programs are catered to everybody in there, Mm -hmm. no matter what you've been through in life. And they can Mm -hmm. help you in your transformation to be a better person. So. The Thousand Miles Club is that in the case that it helps, you know, with your mind and your physical body, um, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So you were originally inspired to join the club because one of your friends on the inside had committed suicide. Can you tell the listeners about that story? Uh, yes. Um, I'm going to say I got to San Quentin in 2011 and 12, 13, 14, 15. So in 2015 was my first board hearing. And that would have been a total of 15 years before going to the board or at least being able to uh, be granted suitability for parole. So you'd serve the 15 years of your 15 to life sentence. Uh, in 2015, I did. Right. But in 2011 is when I first got to San Quentin. Mm-hmm. So between that time is when, you know, when I first got to San Quentin, I met a lot of wonderful, amazing people who have changed their lives for the better, who were probably like vicious people that would have probably cut my throat or stabbed me. If, when they first got to prison, but mm-hmm. these people were a little bit older, they were more mature. And so I would call it that they gave me the game and they laced me inside the prison. And this was one guy in particular that I really was fond of. And I took a liking to because even those brief moments when I was down and out, he would say, you know, just hang in there. Everything will be all right, man. It's, you know, it's not the end of the world. This year here on earth and you're a survivor you're surviving and you know he would always give me this words of encouragement and not be judgmental and not look down on me so he was him and a couple of other guys were like guys that I 
gravitated to because mm-hmm. they kind of had the like mind and heart and spirit like I did. So I kind of like I kind of hung out with these guys. They were older than I was. And he was getting ready to go to the board. And this, I think, I might, I'm going to say probably in 2014. And by that time, he had already been to the board like five or six times. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say five. And so when he went, he got denied. And it broke him. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, Unfortunately, it was still tough and it was very, very hard for people to get out. And so he didn't work this. He'd been working in the PIA industry, building furniture, doing all these wonderful things, mattresses. And all. He used to work in the mattress factory mm-hmm. and he, you know, he put in all his work, so to speak, as far as helping people in the community, helping other brothers inside the prison in these self-help groups, being a motivational speaker, being a big brother, you know, doing all these wonderful, amazing things. And then he goes to the board and they deny him Mm. and it hurt him. So he committed suicide, Mm. actually. He killed himself because he was tired and he gave up. And that hurt me that he gave up uh, because... Um, you know, I can't judge nobody and I don't know what he's been going through, but I know he was just tired of fighting. Yeah. And so I just, I didn't want to be tired of fighting. I mean, mm-hmm. even though it hurt me that he did that and it was times that I have thought that, but I was just too coward enough to even take my own life. But there were times I've thought about that, but never tried it. Yeah. And I'm like, man, because you don't really have hope and, and the way they've been doing that and if you only see two people get out every five or six years or so, that's not enough people. It's overcrowded. There's people that's been doing their their best to be right and do the right things, and they're still being judged on something they did like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they're still getting these denials. And a lot of people gave up. A lot of people was committing suicide. And yeah. um, so he so, was one of the ones that killed himself. So, so that's when. How did he inspire you to get in, involved with the Thousand Mile, Mile Club? Now, that's the thing. He didn't get me inspired to join the Thousand Mile Club. He the one that caused me to start running again. Yeah. He, he, he woke, you know how they say you walk, you, you wake a sleeping giant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that he woke me up to start, to start running and, and just start breaking people records in the Thousand Mile Club. No, yeah. he, by him committing suicide, I needed an outlet. Yeah. I needed something that was more than just my spiritual religion and exercise and mm-hmm. self-help groups because I needed something more than that. And I felt like even though that was there, it still didn't help me from what I was feeling for him and my inadequacies or my self-doubt and self-worth at the time. Mm-hmm. especially when this guy who's doing some amazing work get yeah. denied. Mm-hmm. And to me at that time, his last name was Garcia. So I thought he might've been Spanish, but he was, he looked white to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking if he don't have action, uh, me being black, I know I'm not getting out. Yeah. So I just want to prepare myself for where I don't end up feeling like he did if I get rejected. Man. So I started running on my own. What an amazing story. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think, you know, everybody's going to find that really powerful. And I want to just focus on a couple of things that you said, just to provide some context for people who've never been inside of a prison, San Quentin in particular, like I said, offers these unique opportunities 
mattress factory, furniture factory, where people can actually use their hands to, to build things, um, all these different programs. And another, another thing that you said that really stuck out to me, especially from my experiences, how few or how, yeah, how few and far between it is that guys actually get out. And in my five years of volunteering for the club, I think Chris Schumacher was the only guy who got out during those five years. And it wasn't until after I left and that it seems like things changed on a policy governmental level within the state of California. Got a little better. Got a little better, but you know, we've seen not only yourself, but a handful of other guys from the club finally get out and, um, describing the board, you know, just so people understand. So when you are up for parole, you have an opportunity to go in front of the parole board and plead your case of how you've changed what you're doing to, to rehabilitate yourself and and what they, you're going to do in the future to right. prevent you from ever committing those formal acts of crime again. Right. So, and I remember early in our relationship, you went to the board and you received a, a three-year denial. Yeah. What was that experience like? Like I said, if it wasn't for me uh, starting to run and then, like I said, um, it hurt. Mm -hmm. Because even though I knew what to expect, you still have that, that, that little bit of hope that maybe that won't happen to me and maybe these people will see the change and maybe they will give me a chance. Mm -hmm. And when they don't do that, especially if it's something for a bogus reason, it like, it's just like somebody taking a baseball bat and just beating you to like until your heart collapse. Does it challenge your ability to, to have any hope? Like Obviously, your friend, as you said, he he gave up. Is there any temptation to to give up or to relapse into old bad behaviors to to start maybe using drugs and alcohol again inside the prison, or did you just kind of pour that energy into trying to be a better runner and on on the work that you were and doing within the prison? I yeah. used that to, uh, you know, the same. What don't kill you only make you stronger. <laughs> yep. I looked at that model and I was training myself throughout the years and navigating my way to the point that when I met that guy in San Quentin and the time where I looked at what he did and how he gave up and it just made me stronger mm-hmm. to where I can fight harder, you know, and not give up. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm thinking. Like I said, I think San Quentin is a wonderful place. And if it wasn't for me joining the club and all these things happening with all you wonderful people coming in and giving us hope, that helped as well as my um, continue to focus on doing self-help, continue to do my NNAA for my recovery. All of these things I knew, I said, I have to continue to stay focused on doing this. If I deviate from my original goals and plans, whether it's short term to stay here and do this throughout my duration of being incarcerated and running, I won't make it. So I just continue to do that. And then once I did that and once I've seen that and I see how 
Believe me, people want to do better and feel better about themselves when people tell you, you know what, you're doing good. Continue to do the good work. Hey, man, it was nice. Continue to be, you know, continue to do this, continue to do that. You're doing great. You're looking good. When you when you have that kind of support and those people around you saying these positive things to you, and then you can see how what you do inspires them. Yeah. That only makes you want to do more of that. Yeah. But if you don't have that, which a lot of prisons don't, or a lot of people don't have those other those opportunities to get that, or people telling them that. So it's like all they doing is listening to their head and their head is not programmed and trained to do the right things or feel the right things because they're not getting it trained that way. So all you're going to think is negative. And that's why negative brings negative results and positive thinking brings uh, the best results possible. So, and that's kind of how everything was for me. Yeah. And a big part of that is, is the thousand mile club. And it's a a great microcosm of what you're describing because we, we could all get together, you know, two or three times a month, at least with the coaches, you guys ran together all the time within the prison. And it gave us all the opportunity to see each other improve, to pat each other on the back, to pick each other up when we are injured or not feeling it, unmotivated, maybe getting rejected from the board and just creating that or community. Getting, or not getting something right or somebody doing something wrong to you. Or yeah. I mean, to come out and see you guys or to come out and run with somebody and be able to vent to them and just take it out on a, on a track, on a, on a, on a track was, was that, that's that therapy. Yeah. The run therapy. Yes. That's what it is. So, so, so speaking about taking it out on the track, I want you to describe the San Quentin track for the listeners and, and maybe provide some statistics if you have any on how many miles you, you ran, how many laps maybe that you did around that track over the course of your incarceration. Wow, there's some guys. I'm going to say this to you. <laughs> um, the track, it kind of reminds me of cross country. <laughs> I call it cross country track because there's no other yard like the prison yard at San Quentin. And it's so awkwardly shaped. You got pavement, you got cement, you got grass, you got dirt, you got mud. And it's like a zigzag, almost like an uh, electrical a racetrack course because it's just going all around like a Indy 500 or something. It's just, <laughs> but it's it's doing all of these turns, 90 degree turns, 45 angle turns, yeah. and where it's like you got to you got to darn near almost make a complete stop in some of those turns, <laughs> right? And then uh, I actually. I actually thought about trying to have somebody help me create a video game because I already have it in mind, the pieces, the how you make the points and all of that. But anyway, back to the track. Not it's, only do you have to run and do all of this just to get this 45, uh, I mean, this uh, quarter track, not only you have to do all of this, you have to worry about watching out for people running in front of you, jumping in front of you, standing in front of you, bumping you as you go deliberately popping you out the way as you go. It's like it's baseballs flying, basketball, baseballs are flying, <laughs> basketballs. I mean, it's, it's pigeons. Yeah. And Canadian geese, you might step in there, poop, you might get pooped on by the geese. I mean, by the seagulls, 
you know, it's, it's a whole lot of stuff going on as you're trying to run this marathon. It's such a hard track. Yeah. There's six, yeah. six 90 degree turns and there's like a hill involved. And I, I think kind of like the blessing and the curse of it is that you have a beautiful view of Mount Tam the whole time, you know, that it's like yeah. in beautiful that Marin, is, Marin County, California. And that gives you hope too. Well, you're gives, That's why it, you have to be a runner. Yeah. You yeah. have to run to see that. Exactly. Because yeah. if you're playing baseball and all that, you're not paying that much attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing what you accomplished on that track and the times that you ran just because like you said, it is like a cross country racing course and that it twists and turns and goes up and down. And it's just a, a really slow quarter mile yeah. and the, the, the scenery doesn't change, especially when you're in there years and you got to run thousands and thousands of laps around. I want to talk about Frank for a bit, uh, because I think he's just a really special person who brings a, a really special, um, personality to the club. Can you, can you talk a little bit about Frank Rona and how he's helped you as a man and as an athlete? Uh, I think when anybody look at you and smile at you and never change his expression and look mean at you or anything like that, I think that that's a powerful thing for somebody inside the prison to help with your transformation and rehabilitation. There's nothing more beautiful and powerful than that. And that's what Frank Carey, that smile, uh, the love, uh, a father figure, um, and he was dedicated and still dedicated. The only thing that's holding him and stopping him from going in there is the COVID. Yeah. But he would be in there and he would do his all and his best to be there for us. And he has no judgment, mm -hmm. no judgment. So I haven't met a man, and I'm talking about um, the dude or that can, I mean, I'm just wondering what's going to happen and who's going to be able to fill his shoes once he passed. Cause I don't think there's going to be anybody that'll be able to fill his shoes. He's yeah. an amazing man. Yeah, he, he really is. And, um, he, he accepted me into the club, um, you know, in a, in a moment in my life where, you know, it meant a lot and he just for the listeners is the, the head coach of the club. He's the one who comes up with all the different workouts that we do. And every one of them leads up to a race that we have on the calendar. Usually have a race once a month. And so Frank designs the training that every member of the club does and, and what all of us volunteers did in collaboration with you guys. And also, also, he does, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to say, cause I want you to say he did this to prepare us and to prep us. Yeah. So the ultimate goal is to run and complete a marathon. Thank you. Thank you. So every year, the way that the schedule builds is towards the San Quentin marathon, which takes place in November every year. And so, you know, back to Frank, his story is really good. And, and, um, I would encourage everybody who listens to this to eventually watch the documentary that features you prominently and they can learn a lot more about Frank there, but he got, I think, involved with the club in 2005. So he's been, you know, 15 years of, of, uh, of helping guys like you out and, and people like me as well and giving me the opportunity to connect with, uh, with the community within the prison and, and to learn a lot about myself, um, 
you know, at, at the same time. And so, and then of course, you know, the mentorship that he provides once guys are free and helping people find jobs and, and everything. I think he's just a, a really powerful and, and sweet man who, who contributes a lot with, without, you know, without much recognition. I'm sure he doesn't need any recognition, but it's, it's pretty remarkable what he and Diana Fitzpatrick and Kevin Rumon and Tim Fitzpatrick and Jim Maloney all, uh, all bring to the table as, as volunteers. Um, so you were released in early 2019. You've been out for about a year and a half now. How do you think about the 18 years of your incarceration now with some perspective? Even though it was dark, it was scary, it was dangerous. Going through that experience made me the best person I could possibly be today. Mm -hmm. I got 19 years now today of sobriety, almost 20. 19 years today? Is this the uh, anniversary? No, it, was, it was in August. Oh, congratulations, man. 19 yeah. years. Yeah. 19 years of sobriety, being sober, being clean. I've been able to work on myself, understand who I was then, where I come from and who I am today and how I can be a better person going forward. It helped me meet a whole lot of wonderful, amazing people such as yourself, Dylan. You don't give yourself the credit, but you are a great person too. Well, everybody loved when you came in because we <laughs> could see the professional athlete and, uh, you know, and to help us, help push us to uh, get our maximum potential. Um, also, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the prison and for me being able to use that as a place to uh, sort of purify myself, just like throwing the gold into the fire and burn off the impurities and bring the raw gold it helped me to become the raw person I am today, the more authentic person, the person that I was made and was raised to become, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I had a lot to do with a lot of inner and self-help work and a lot of, uh, running in a thousand mile club. So it was like a, and that all was my therapy, the Shakespeare, the running, the inner work and the self-help groups with mindful meditation, Grip, guiding rage and the power, anger management, uh, different, just different groups, different self-help groups to work, help me to work on myself eternally. I mean, internally, you know, um, to help me be authentic, to help me speak my truth, to help me uh, not be ashamed uh, anymore about my past. Of course, sometimes uh, I feel like a little bit frightened or a little bit afraid, just like when I'm filling out an application, when they say they're not supposed to ask you anymore, but they're still out here judging people for what they did 20, 30, 40 years ago and not seeing the person for who they are today. And that's just the same on how it is, but that's just the reality of the whole thing mm -hmm. that you're not going to be able to, please everybody and some people are still going to have ill feelings and ill will towards a person who is a felon or have been to prison regardless of what that type of amazing person they is and that's yeah. what's weird i'm gonna give you an example yeah my mom went to a banquet at her job before she retired 33 34 years at the airport she went to a banquet she brought back this food right and it was fried up 
all kinds of seafood just smells and look good. I thought it was all shrimps just stuck together. But when I started eating that stuff, it was good. And it had different flavors and it was really good, seasoned real well. And then after I ate this stuff and I finished it and I asked my mom, what was that? She said it was shrimps, mussels, octopus, all kinds of stuff, right? And I'm like, I ate that and I wanted to gag it out. But it was too late. It was good. You see, I judged it after the fact that I knew what it was. So it's like, I, in reverse and looking back, and I'm trying to explain what I mean by this, instead of looking at the beautiful person that I am today, they looking at how it took to grow this thing. Wow. How you use... Uh, horse maneuver or whatever, whatever yeah. it is, and fertilizer and dirt and water and all this stuff. And you blend this up and you wait for these roots and then these roots have to sprout into different things, right? So it's like, but yet you put these things down and these questions and you go back like 18, 20 years and you look, because you have to speak your truth. Yeah. So then now it's like, I can't get an apartment. I can't get a good job because you're going off my past. Yeah. But other than that, uh, well, I learned how to deal with that today though. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're paving, you're paving the way for, for the next generation and the work that you do and leading by example for people who have been incarcerated will hopefully change the status quo so that, you know, maybe better opportunities will be afforded to people who are released 10 years from now than, than you got based on the fact that you're leading by example and showing that great things can be done. And, you know, I want to kind of move on and, and talk about what you've done since you, since you've been released, because I think there's a couple of really great stories. And of course, while you were in the prison, you developed this amazing reputation as being a a great athlete. You earned the nickname Markel, the gazelle, which is very fitting. You're the fastest man ever. You broke every single record. Um, and what about a few months after being released, you had the opportunity to run the Boston marathon the greatest foot race in the world, in most people's opinion. And of course you, for everybody who runs the Boston marathon, you have to qualify. You have to run a time that deems you worthy to run the race. And you ran a qualifying time on the track in San Quentin and then had to deal with, you know, getting permission to travel in order to, to do the race from, um, you know, your, parole officer. And so I wanted you to just talk about your experience running the Boston marathon where you ran a big personal record and, and what that meant to you as a newly released free man. Wow. Uh, that was a blessing. Um, and actually I'm still feeling the remnants of that, believe it or not. It's like (laughs) people say, man, even those guys that got out after me, it's like, that's unheard of, especially in California prison system. How did a person get out and a month and a half later fly to Boston run a marathon who's on life parole? It doesn't happen. But I did that. Um, and that right there, I am extremely grateful for and blessed because it seemed like uh with the support of Christine, the movie producer, director, and uh, 
and all the coaches rallying behind me, uh, I was able to go there. I mean, it was a little bit of resistance because I guess that's the formality of how things are supposed to transpire when a person that's, has a felony to leave the state. But um, thank God for San Francisco because <laughs> the San Francisco parole allowed me to go and they didn't have no escort or nothing. They trusted the coaches and Christine that I would go there and go there for five days and run the Boston Marathon and come back. And I was able to do that. And I'm, and I'm extremely grateful and appreciative. And that was an amazing thing. And uh, I was, I felt like, um, I don't want to, I don't know what cartoon character I can use, but I just felt like I was, uh, in euphoria somewhere for a minute. Like it just like, I just stayed excited. Like, uh, I'm gonna give you an example. I just celebrated, uh, um, something uh, for me, uh, through with, uh, with Claire and John. And it's like somebody teased and they said, man, you have a birthday that never ends. And it's like, when I, <laughs> I got on the Red Boston Marathon, it seemed like that carried over for weeks. Yeah. I just was feeling so excited about that experience. Yeah. I mean, and it's a great example of how when you do the right things for 18 years of incarceration and you spend so much time trying to make yourself better that good things can happen and you can be rewarded for that, all that hard work, even if, you know, it doesn't, you know, make up for a, a mistake that you made in the past. At least we can acknowledge that mistake work exactly. to be better. We work to be better people and still be rewarded for all that hard work, even though we're all imperfect. And it was such an amazing thing. I, I wish I could have been there to see you uh, cross the finish line. And hopefully you'll be able to go back and, and improve on your time in the near yeah, future. Yeah, we're working on that too. Yeah, cool. And again, I just want to plug the, the film, which I think is going to be coming out uh, in 2021. And when it does come out. I definitely want to have Christine on the podcast so we can talk, talk through, uh, that experience at Boston as well, which I know she documented as part of her film, which features you heavily. And, um, you know, to sort of close the, the loop on our, on our conversation and talk about another thing that you did very recently. I want to just spend a little time discussing the, the recent personal marathon, the personal time trial marathon that you did, well, just uh, a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in Napa, you've had a long running goal of going sub three hours in the marathon and you definitely have the skills and, and talent to do so. And this was a great opportunity to, to try, even though it wasn't in a real race context because of the coronavirus situation that we're all dealing with. Can you tell us about that recent marathon that you did in Napa? And what made it special? Well, I'm just going to go back a little and just say leading up to that, um, I was very well prepared and ready to go. But because of the fires that were leaking around everywhere, it, made the, it was making it difficult for me to run this race. So it, it was put off for three weeks. And on that third week, I kind of got actually 
the only reason why I didn't give up and stop running it because you called in and checked up on it and said, uh, yeah, y'all still going to do that run. And then Jorge is supposed to be pacing me and he's a very good runner. <laughs> you know, uh, I will say world class himself. Um, I think he took second in Boston last year in the marathon. See for, yeah, for 40 plus. Yep. Yeah. yeah. For a master's oh, runner. For, for master, but not yeah. second overall. Not second overall. Okay. He took yeah. second for masters just to clarify that. I, I think clear. so. Yeah. I'll have to okay. look that up, but a great runner, Jorge Maravilla. Most people who listen to this podcast know who Jorge is. He's a okay. great, great athlete and also a great character in the sport and a yeah, high, high quality person. Yeah. Um, so in order to keep me interested in running this, the coach has tricks up his sleeve. He's very clever in that regard because I lost interest yeah. after that first time I couldn't run it and I had to keep myself motivated. Right. And, and I said, okay, you know what? All of these people was getting into this. They want to see me do it. More and more people getting involved. And then originally Jorge was supposed to do it because he, they had already talked about it. He was there. We even did a training run uh, where it was talked about we might be able to do the marathon, and that was China Camp Loop twice, and I didn't like that at all. But we did the loop once together uh, as a trial run. Then, actually, Jorge kept his word. He was there, and he ran the whole marathon with me. And I think if it wasn't for him, that three miles in with my calf cramped up, I wouldn't have made it through. I would have kept going, but I wouldn't have ran and pushed as hard as I did. That's why I think uh, Jorge was amazing in pushing me and helping me to continue to fight and push through it and stay and maintain that 630, 640 pace that whole entire way. Yeah. And uh, another one of our mutual friends, Patty O'Leary, I just want to to acknowledge his participation as well. I think he ran half of it with you guys. So yes, he did. shout out to Jorge Maravilla and, and Patty O'Leary for helping exactly. you out. Yeah, but, uh, he, yeah. the, uh, I guess the unfortunate conclusion of the marathon that j- just means there's another chapter yet to be written before we ultimately have to start making you run ultra marathons is <laughs> you, uh, you still have the goal of running under three hours left to achieve because you, you ran three hours flat plus six seconds, three Oh 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 six. Although who knows, maybe they, they miscalculated, mismeasured the course, but, um, damn close to that three hour mark. And, uh, we just got to yeah. try again. As hard as I fought <laughs> and the time that I had and I looked at it, see, I wasn't paying attention at first because I was so exhausted after I finished because mm-hmm. my calf was killing me after that three miles and they helped push me through. And like you said, yeah, Patty, he came in at the uh, half halfway mark where I had another 13 to go. And uh, he helped push me along with Jorge. And I even paced with him sometime to try to keep pace. And uh, there was a little bit of time where I slowed back. I think I had one or two miles that was like at a seven-minute pace. Mm-hmm. But other than that, they both did real well in pushing me. That was a great support, and they they, they really helped me. Uh, and believe it or not, I mean, we're going to go with what the coach says. Uh, but and Jorge's watch had me at, uh, at a PR 
258, 54. <laughs> but I got to go off of what they say. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it on an officially measured course. But that was a that was a good training run. Yeah, that was nice. So, Markel, I just have a couple more questions before we get going. And um, one thing that I want you to just help people to understand is, you know, oftentimes with incarcerated people, you know, they're, they're sort of out of sight of the general public. Right. And therefore they're, they're out of mind as well. And people might think, you know, who cares, you know, they're beyond redemption. They did something bad in their past. What would you say to those people, like, as it relates to their perception of incarcerated people? And then the second part of that question is, what would you say to a young person who's recently been sentenced to 15 to life to help them through that experience? Well, to answer your first question, I would say to those people that you have a right to feel whatever you want to feel about a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even in, in this case, people who are incarcerated for crimes or whether it's a serious or hard crime or just a petty crime. Um, but just remember, if you are ho- holding a grudge or a resentment or some kind of ill will, that means that you still need work in your own self. But you have that right to feel that way, you know, because whatever is in your past or whatever is going on with you is why you can't be able to have the capacity to have love in your heart to be to have remorse, I mean, to have forgiveness or to not take things personal. I mean, it takes a lot to be able to do that. I mean, that means that you are really, uh, which everybody's not, and I'm not expecting everybody to. I mean, like I said, uh, people have a right to feel the way they want to feel, but that means that if you can't let go or you got to hold on to something against somebody that you don't even know about their past, then that means you need to do a lot of, do, you need to do a lot of inner work on yourself mm-hmm. because that's something that's, uh, it's not healthy because we know even in therapy that forgiveness is a way to, uh, to help your own soul, your mind and heart. I mean, just think about it. If you take a a roll of quarters or silver dollar pieces and you got about a whole roll of them and you squeeze them real tight and you just hold it there, that right there is hate, resentment, grudges, and all of those things that's negative. You can't keep holding on to that because if you do, that has cramps and all of that stuff. And that's the same thing you're doing to your heart when you hold Mm -hmm. resentments and grudges and all that against other people, especially people you don't know. Let it go, release, forgive and love and you'll be a healthier person and you'll live a lot longer and you'll feel a lot better. That's what I would say to people that that feel that way. Now, as far as a youngster that's uh, facing the same type of adversities, I would say learn to forgive yourself and love yourself and just work on a way without giving up Mm -hmm. to continue to transform yourself in a way to first make yourself feel good about who you are. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's like cleaning up your car. 
next thing you know, the the light reflects in the shine and you look like new money. Yeah. And that's how your soul and your heart will be like new money. <laughs> it's just beautiful, man. Just forgive, forgive other people and forgive yourself. It's a, exactly. it's a, it's a wonderful lesson to, to leave people with. And from my perspective and something that Frank brought into to my consciousness as it relates to being a, a volunteer is that, 90% of all incarcerated people end up being released at some point. And so it's our responsibility and our obligation as free people to give those who are incarcerated an opportunity to re-enter society, a changed exactly. person, a better person, and a person who, who has a, a sense of direction and a sense of what they want to accomplish in the world. And so I would really encourage anybody listening to this to get involved. Um, if you have any opportunity to get involved with prison programs of any kind, it's incredibly rewarding. And as much value as we provided you guys by, by coming into the prison, you know, we felt it tenfold coming back the other way. And, and our friendship has continued since you've been released. And, and uh, it's just amazing that we can sit here and have these, these conversations exactly. now. And, and this would have never happened, you know, if I hadn't gotten involved and if you hadn't been incarcerated, you know, exactly. and now, now we're connected forever. And it's a, Could it's I ask wonderful. you a question real Please. quick? Yeah. You don't have to answer it now, but it's kind of for the world too. Yeah. How would you feel if you did something that you might've been ashamed of or you did wrong out of, out of a mistake. It could have been like, you were just angry at that time, whatever, but mm -hmm. you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And whoever saw that just every time they saw you, they brought it up to mm -hmm. you. How would It'd you be feel? terrible. Yeah, it would be terrible. And, you know, especially 20 years after the fact, if you're still reminded of it every day and you're still feeling the consequences of it every day, uh, even no matter how much work you've put into to changing, um, it would be different. And and then something I've mentioned on the podcast in the past is, you know, I, I partied a lot as a kid. I did stupid shit as a kid. And, and uh, you know, I got in trouble as a kid, not anything serious, but honestly, by virtue of the fact of me being a, a straight white male who grew up in a good family in an affluent town, you know, there weren't any serious consequences for the stupid shit that I did. And, uh, that's something that I have to, to sort of acknowledge and, and something that I learned just by virtue of interacting with everybody in the club and, and seeing that most everybody who's in San Quentin grew up without the opportunities that I did. And, uh, you know, and, uh, were it not for, or if I grew up in those same circumstances, there's, there's no, telling what would have happened, you know, there's absolutely a chance that I would have ended up in the exact same position. And so that's, again, why I would really encourage people to get involved. So Markel, dude, mm -hmm. this has been so great, man. It's so fun to chat. I want to just yeah. finish by, by uh, giving a plug to your new clothing line, which you're handsomely modeling right now. Oh, thanks, um, man. That is, uh, yeah, just an opportunity to, you know, support you and, and wear uh, some styling gear at the same time. Can you, uh, can you tell people about what inspired you to do this and how they can get their hands on it? Um, what inspired me to do this is in, in prison. Um, I thought about if I ever had the chance to get out, 
I would want to give back to my brothers that I left behind on the, in the prison because I, I was, I felt like we was the only one getting the short end of the stick, even though we was getting nice shoes to come in and baseball caps. But the other um, teams like the baseball teams, the football team, they was getting 49 a gear that was donated. And then the basketball team was getting warrior gear that was donated. And the baseball team was getting giants and Oakland A's gear that was donated. And it was like, man, what about the running club? We wear <laughs> stuff that come out the package and it's like stuff that we have to wear a long time, boring, same colors and all this and that. So I said, maybe I can get out and create something that has something to do with representing myself as well as giving back to my community and giving something to my brothers inside the San Quentin. So I originally came up with this uh, run free uh, wording with the Bob wire uh uh, logo mm-hmm. and it had thousand mile club San Quentin in the back. Uh, Kevin Roman, he helped me uh, with that, make that reality come true. But I was like, okay, now I need something for myself out here that I can have to start for runners and as well as myself. So I don't have to worry about buying Nike and Adidas anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I came up with this idea, like the jump man for Jordan. And I have like this, with the uh but it's yeah. actually Lyle gave me a picture of me and some shadows of me running. I don't know where he got the photo from. Oh, cool. And I took it and I said, you know what? This would be a perfect opportunity for a nice logo for me running. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted it is I wanted to have it running. And because I was free before even getting out of incarceration, which I didn't mention that much because of all the work I did on my and my mind free before I even went to the board to even get out. And so run free. And I was like, when you run, you free yourself from, from your own bondage of self, negative thinking of physical uh, uh, bondage. Like I was incarcerated, but when I ran the track, I was free. Like you said, looking at Mount Tam, I always envisioned myself being on the other side of the fence, running up there and, and going up to that hill, up that mountain. And I was able to do that. So the run free represent free for anybody, whatever that uh, that uh, captivity is, whatever that is that's holding you uh, to run free means to let go and release anything that's holding you in bondage. Yeah. And so that's why I came up with that idea. And then I just took me running and made a little image of it and shrinked it. And this is actually me and you, or actually this was me running in San Quentin yeah, with the same type the same shorts on and everything. Yeah. So that's where I got the idea. And so I said, maybe I can start a running some sweatsuits and running shorts and everything like that. That's that represent a runner and what I stand for in running, you know, yeah. So, that's so how, can, I, how can people get some? Uh, but it, before, you know, the website goes up, what's the best way for people to uh, maybe get well, it? Maybe with your help and the help of uh, uh, the Marine Shakespeare Company, I can use you guys as a way to help me promote my clothes and to go through you guys yeah. and then give them my email or whatever, or you guys can call yeah. me and I can do some orders. Great. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll share your email with people who listen to this so that they can get in touch with you and place an order, but so, yeah. 
Markel, man, it's so awesome to see how far you've come and, you know, to be friends and to see you on the outside thriving and still running and still sober and doing all these great things with your life. It's, it's really remarkable. And I'm sure you provide a lot of inspiration to a lot of people. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a long time and I think people are going to really love it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I like I said, I'm continue to be blessed. I, I feel, I feel really deep in my heart that I'm extremely grateful because I feel like there's people in incarcerated still that haven't had the opportunity that I'm ha that I have right now. And it's like, sometimes I feel like guilty and I wish that they could be on the other side right with me because, you know, there, there's a lot of people in there still doing some amazing stuff and they yeah. just need the opportunity. Yeah. And I'm just one of them just doing my best so they can have an opportunity to get out as well. That's great. Great place to end. Well, I love you, bro. We'll talk to you more soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks to Markel. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Maybe get a little bit more faith in humanity and the ability to change as humans. If you enjoyed the show, of course, I would be super appreciative if you left me a rating or review in whatever podcast service that you use. And do check out the show notes where you can read the New York Times profile of Mark Hill that was written uh, around his Boston Marathon run. You can also check out the San Quentin Marathon documentary that I think is going to be released in 2021 that we mentioned in the show a few times. If you feel so compelled, they are still still accepting donations for fundraising for that film, which you'll find there on their website, again, linked in the show notes. You can also find Markel's email there. So let him know if you enjoyed the show. You can also inquire about his clothing line that we talked about at the end. Again, thank you guys all for listening. It means a lot to have you here. And uh, I've got some more coming very soon. Until next time. Love you. Bye.